Welcome to The Penny Drops, the Royal London podcast series simplifying finance to help more people, like you, make better informed money decisions. Royal London recommends you seek professional independent financial advice before making financial decisions. Hello, I'm Andrea Fox, a journalist, broadcaster and the host of The Penny Drops, where I speak to some of the best financial experts out there. This podcast was recorded during the coronavirus outbreak, so please excuse any sound issues as we are recording remotely. And for the latest information on financial support and benefits, visit gov.uk forward slash coronavirus. Now, on this episode of The Penny Drops, we're talking about COP26, the United Nations climate change talks that are happening in Glasgow as we speak. Today, I'm joined by Casey Rayner, climate change lead at Royal London, who's going to tell us all about COP26, why it's such a crucial event for climate change, and finally, what it's got to do with finance. So, Casey, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm really excited uh, to be talking about COP and the importance of COP26 in particular. Yes, and I think it's probably best if we start off with the word we've said quite a few times already, COP. What exactly does it stand for? What exactly does it mean? Yeah, so COP is um, a shortening of the words Conference of Parties. Um, And what is that? So the Conference of Parties is an annual meeting of the 196 countries that have joined the United Nations Climate Change Convention. Uh, And the reason we call this COP26 is this is the 26th meeting of the Conference of Parties. So 196 countries, does that mean 26? We've been doing this for 26 years now. We have been doing this for 26 years, although um, it's really 27 because well, the yes. COP26 was supposed to be held in 2020. 2020 um, doesn't count, including 2020. All of our no, agents. we get to write that one off, right? <laughs> so, um, so it's now being held in 2021, and this is the 26th. Uh, year of negotiations but they have had a few different variations over time Um, but yeah 26th time we've met. Yeah and key climate milestones people may have heard the phrase the Paris Agreement they've come out of previous COP meetings so what progress has been made since then and what's the climate situation looking like now? Yeah, so the the Paris Agreement was secured um, in Paris during COP21. So that that was five negotiations ago. It took place in 2015. And and really, the Paris Agreement was instrumental because it was the first time ever that every country agreed to work together to limit global warming to well below two degrees, but aiming for uh, limiting that to 1.5 degrees and to adapt to the impacts of climate change and to help deliver money to the kind of uh, developments that needed to take place to make this happen. Now, where are we now? So we're not in a great place uh, right now. We've had um, a big report come out from the United Nations. Uh, that the, the latest update, I think, is in, in more than five years around where we're heading. And it does look like we're not going to hit uh, the 1.5 degree limit threshold. And it does look like we're, we're heading towards two degrees rather than keeping it below 1.5 with 1.5 being reached by 2040. So that is why this year's negotiations are incredibly important if we are to change the trajectory that we're on today uh, and make that a much better trajectory for future generations to come. Yeah, and uh, you know, as we're saying, there's a lot of attention around COP26 happening in Glasgow, as we mentioned. Um, is that why this event is so important this year? Because of that sort of deadline for one and a half degrees of warming? 
Yeah, it's, it's really important both for the temperature aspect and, and the fact that we need to make changes happen, but it's also really important because part of the Paris Agreement um, rules were that every five years, countries would come back with an updated plan on how they're going to achieve this limit to global warming. And, mm -hmm. and a huge part of that is through limiting carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. um, and the way that countries talk about their planning is, is called a nationally determined contribution or an NDC. And so this year is the year that all the countries need to come back together with their revised plans um, and their new nationally determined contributions. And if we kind of look at where the nationally determined contributions take us at the moment, they take us on a trajectory by 2100 to get to about 3.6 degrees. So we really want to see those nationally determined contributions start to ratchet down the way and bring us in line with net zero by 2050. Um, so it's really important that as we head into Glasgow, all of those countries kind of get their pens and paper out and start thinking about how they can increase their commitments to reduce emissions. Yeah, it's homework showing time, isn't it? It really is. It's <laughs> homework, homework showing and homework marking time. Um, but the, the really exciting thing, I think, from, from my perspective is, you know, there's been a lot of change over the last five years. Uh, you know, where we were a couple of years ago was that America was not going to be turning up to, mm -hmm. to COP26. Um, that really kind of spurred China on to take a leadership position. And now with the U.S. back on the stage, there is a little bit of jostling around who's going to get the gold star for their homework. And from a climate person's perspective, I would much rather have jostling to see who's going to get the gold star mm -hmm. than kind of people disappearing off the side of the stage. So I'm, I'm still hopeful that um, we can see some some big change at COP26. And I, I think the thing that COVID has certainly shown me is that Things that you thought could never happen can actually happen overnight. Right. So how we've responded to COVID has really broken the belief that big change can't happen. Yes. And I really hope that flows through into the climate negotiations this year in Glasgow. Yeah. And you mentioned the phrases global net zero. One of the key goals um, by 2050 is to secure that global net zero, keep global warming to the limit of one and a half degrees. Um, what exactly is net zero and what do you think is required for that key goal to happen? So net zero is, can, can be really complicated, but if we were to simplify it grossly, it means that in the ecosystem of the world where we're emitting carbon through our activities, we're also doing things that sequester carbon to offset that. Um, so it's about putting nature and humanity in balance. Mm -hmm. So we're not saying that all carbon needs to be cut. What we're saying is that the amount of carbon emitted through economic practices needs to be manageable within the environment that we live in. So and much like we wouldn't say we don't want any water, we want kind of like a net water situation so that we have clouds that suck up water and then we have rain and then we have rivers. We don't want to have floods and we don't want to have droughts. It's about having that carbon in balance with the, the natural carbon sinks that we have like forests, etc. So uh, at the moment, we don't have that. Um, we have about 40 gigatons of carbon, which is a lot of carbon, emitted lot. every year that is beyond what our natural carbon sinks can, can sequester. So we need to get that 40 gigatons down to 20 gigatons by 2030 and to zero gigatons by 2050. Now, right. there are different ways that people are looking at doing this. Um, okay. You may have heard of P30, 
people sucking carbon out of the air, but um, they can't suck a whole gigaton, a gigaton out of the air yet. So it, that's not something that we can rely on. Instead, we need to be looking at how we change our lives to reduce the carbon that we use. Right. Yeah. And that's going to be quite a big change and quite different depending on the country, which is um, why COP26 is happening, isn't it? So what do you think would be the outcome or the impact if all countries taking part don't necessarily take part in those necessary activities? Yeah, so the the new report from the IPCC kind of lays this out. Um, mm. and, and what they've looked at is five different scenarios. There's the really happy path scenario where everyone comes to COP26, we all agree to take immediate action and we all go home, complete our homework and put it into place. And if we're able to do that, then it's likely that we will be able to keep temperature warming between 1.2 and 1.7 degrees uh, between now and 2040. And that with kind of sustainable economic development, we can keep global warming below two degrees by 2100. But that really does rely on a, a massive change to our economic systems. At the other end of the spectrum, if we continue on a pathway that is very similar to how we live our lives today, then what we're looking at is a warming of 1.6 degrees by 2040, probably a two and a half degree warming within my lifetime and, and over four degrees of warming by 2100. Mm. So when we start to think about what needs to change, if we think about the economic changes that we saw when COVID happened, we saw uh, carbon emissions drop by mm. between five to 12 percent um, during that period. Now, what we would need to achieve net zero by 2050 is an ongoing seven percent reduction in emissions every year year on year between now and 2050. Okay. And that is quite a substantial amount of change if we think about the economic disruption that COVID had. Um, and, and after, you know, economies started reopening, what we've actually seen is that carbon emissions have shot back up again. So it, it does require a wholesale rethink of how we eat, move, travel, consume, um, because at the moment, fossil fuels really drive all of that. So it's not saying those things need to stop. We just need to change how we're doing them. Yeah, every time we eat, move, travel and consume, I like I like that. That is kind of everything that it's connected with. So can you talk us through some of the other goals uh, at COP26? What else is uh, the meeting hoping to achieve? Yeah, so the focus is absolutely on how we keep temperature warming within uh, the, the two degree limit. But there are other goals out there. So during during the Paris Agreement, there are a number of different sub-agreements that needed to be signed. And uh, if we were to take that homework analogy, one of those pieces of homework is overdue. Uh, and that piece of overdue homework is called Article 6. And it's really focused on how we mobilize finance to deliver some of our ambitions. So Step one is agree Article 6, how we mobilise finance and, and how we think about pricing some of the effects of carbon. The other things that we, we want to focus on, because it's not just about finance and it's not just about the temperature rise, it's also about how we protect communities and natural habitats and how we ensure a just, fair and equitable transition, both for um, society in developed and developing nations, um, some of whom are already experiencing climate 
change effects mm. through rising sea levels. So a huge part of that is thinking about how we protect and restore ecosystems, how we build resilience and how we help and encourage countries that are already affected by climate change to adapt uh, and, and build more resilient infrastructure and agriculture to avoid loss of homes, livelihoods and, and, and even lives. Mm. Um, so there's a huge kind of community and human aspect um, to these negotiations as well. And so when you, if you have a look on the website um, that is available to see what everyone is talking about over the course of the two-week negotiation period, you will see there is one day for finance, but there are multiple other days to talk about things like how we make sustainable cities, how we transform our energy systems, how do we look after nature, through to how do we adapt and mitigate um, loss and damage as we move through this transition. So, yeah, as you mentioned, whole day for finance, it is high up on the agenda. But what is that role that finance plays, whether it's public or private sector finance, in helping us to reach net zero? Yeah, I think people don't realise the role that that finance plays when you first think about it. Um, So, you know, we've had lots of conversations around pensions and, and people don't really connect pensions with the real world or finance with the real world but ultimately finance is what builds the world around us Uh, so if there is a new railway or a new road that needs to be financed if there's a new power station that needs to be financed and so really finance is the underpinning building block for the world we see around us and so if finance continues to flow in the directions that it has previously flowed it will continue to build a world that looks like yesterday. Mm. And we need tomorrow to look radically different to yesterday. So it's really important that we start to think about how we shift the direction of finance from building stuff that looks like yesterday into building stuff that looks like a better version of tomorrow and helping to create a future that we all want to live in. So whether that's private finance or public finance, we need to be redirecting those flows of finance into new types of activities to green our infrastructure, to think about different ways of packaging our food, to think about different ways of transporting both ourselves and the things that we want to purchase around the world. Yeah, and why do you think it's so important that financial companies and institutions play a part in this as well? So I I think we can often think that um, some of these really big decisions are just the role of government to do or Mm. that it's somebody else's problem or somebody else's decision. But but actually quite a lot of these decisions are driven by people in companies uh, within financial institutions and, and even ourselves when we're thinking about the different things that we buy. So for Royal London, you know, we look after over a hundred billion pounds of people's pension money. And mm. and like everybody else, you know, we're investing in the companies that are creating the world around us. And so it's not somebody out there that is going to decide to shift the flows of finance. It, it's very much the people within these financial institutions making investment decisions on a day-to-day basis. So from our perspective, it's it's really important that we engage with our customers to understand, well, what do they want their money to be doing? Do they know what their money is doing today? How do we help them understand that? And and what do they want their money doing to build a, a future for them to retire into? And then importantly, how do we try and make that happen? 
And so the things that we're doing are thinking about, well, the companies that we're invested in today, are they well positioned to enable the low carbon transition? If they're not well positioned, do we really want to invest in them? Do we want to give them less money? Do we want to take some of that money and, and give it to the companies that we think are going to help build a better future? And how do we work with government to help build out the infrastructure that we need to get there? So it's not something that happens elsewhere. It's something that is happening every day about how we allocate our money. And it, it then it becomes everybody's responsibility to think about that a little differently, um, both from financial institutions perspective, right through to the financial decisions that we make day to day. Yeah. And, and so I guess, is it crucial that the industry works together to drive all this action? Critical. I mean, we don't we don't have time uh, to to be kind of uh, in competition with each other, and there, there are rules around that. But we have seen you know competition rules suspended recently, and um, to enable mm. responding to crises. And so I think there is a real desire from the financial sector to work collaboratively, and and this will be the first climate negotiations where there is a, a finance sector section where the finance sector can come together and, and pledge how they will help uh, to deliver this future that we want to live in. And we've seen that even from the UK, the, the Association of British Insurers recently launched their climate change roadmap and, and they look after around 1.6 trillion uh, of customer money. Oh. And and what they've said is they think they can unlock almost a trillion of that to help invest in the transition to net zero um, alongside public finance as well. So, Casey, are you able to talk us through some specific finance topics that are going to be discussed at COP26? One of the one of the biggest topics is how do we put a price on carbon mm. um, and and carbon pricing markets. So I'll maybe give you an example of conversations that we've we've had with some really big um, carbon intensive sectors. So we had conversations with BHP and steel manufacturers around, you know, where are your carbon emissions coming from? And, and lots of carbon emissions from steel, which is absolutely necessary to the transition. If we want to make turbines and things like that, we absolutely need steel. Uh, so I would count these as kind of helpful carbon emissions. Where do they come from? Well, they come from um, the smelting process. So when you smelt iron ore, you have to do that at high heat. So you use thermal coal to do that. And so we've had conversations with um, steel manufacturers around, well, can you make steel without thermal coal? And, and they said, yes, they can, but it will be much more expensive. So then the challenge is if we in the UK manufacture more expensive steel, who's going to buy it if you can buy cheap steel that has been manufactured with thermal coal? And this is where carbon pricing comes into play. If you can start to put uh, a charge on the burning of thermal coal, which creates carbon, it means that the cleaner steel manufacturing can be more competitive and we can start to put it on an even footing with the steel that has been manufactured with carbon emissions associated with it. And it means right. then that's going to drive different decisions and different behaviors. So that's one of the really big discussion points around how do we create a really fair carbon pricing market that works globally uh, and it's never been done before and everybody agrees to, um, or do we have to go down the route as we've seen um, with new trade negotiations of putting in place kind of border tariffs and things like that to incentivize low carbon um, manufacturing? Right. 
And Royal London's got a ticket to COP26 because you are going to be taking part in some of the conference events this year. So can you tell us a little bit about that, how you're involved? Really excited to be involved with COP26 from a Royal London perspective. Um, And so we're doing something really interesting, which is less about the nitty gritty and more about um, challenging ourselves as a financial institution to think about our purpose. Um, What is is the purpose of finance? What is the purpose Mm. of... Uh, financial institutions. And and for a long time, people would say, oh, well, the purpose of finance is to make money, right? The purpose of money is to make money. And, and we're at a point in society where we're really questioning whether that is true. Uh, financial services are here to provide services to society. And I think sometimes we've, we've lost our way with that. We saw with the financial crash that financial services kind of got ahead of itself and society needed to, to bail out the finance sector. And, and we're kind of of the view that actually maybe now's the time for the finance sector to be bailing out society mm. and, and thinking about how we can use finance as an enabler to building this better future that we want to live in. And one of the greatest thinkers about, you know, the purpose of the financial systems was Adam Smith. And he wrote a book called The Wealth of Nations. Mm-hmm. And many people reference the, the wealth of nations when they talk about the free market and the invisible hand of the market. But what they don't realize is that Adam Smith wrote two books mm-hmm. uh, and they were supposed to be read in conjunction with each other. One is about the wealth of nations, but the other is about a theory of moral sentiments. And and in it, he talks about the fact that we need to work from a place of sympathy and have understanding for others. And some of these ideals haven't really been brought into our economic system, where we focus on rational economic man, who I don't think I've ever met, and (laughs) and taking decisions uh, on a purely selfish basis. So we're revisiting the ideals of Adam Smith for a climate-constrained world and really challenging ourselves to think about what does an effective financial system and market do to create uh, a sustainable society. And to do that, we're working with leading economists from around the world to rewrite the wealth of nations and then hosting a series of evening events to discuss some of the topics that they've come up with. But I've, I've no doubt that we'll not be referencing the invisible hand of the market and perhaps making reference to instead the need for a heart uh, of the market or indeed reasserting the need for a moral compass for markets. So I'm really excited to engage with these economists and, and hear what they think we can be doing in the 21st century to revisit these ideals. Yeah, definitely. Read the sequel is, uh, is yeah. The, yeah, the advice that's come out of that. And you've already touched on this, but let's talk pensions. Um, because as well as the overall look at finance, there is a focus on pensions, specifically net zero pensions. So can you just focus in on why pensions and investments are such a powerful tool in terms of climate action? So there's such a powerful tool and we don't even have to do that much to make them powerful. So lots of people are making (laughs) life changes around becoming vegan or selling their car, taking the bike. Um, But actually with your pension, your pension can be up to 27 times more powerful than than giving up meat by shifting where your pension invests. And instead of investing in high carbon companies and promoting um, more drilling in the Arctic by moving your money away and investing 
in the companies that are going to create our low carbon future, your money could be doing more on your behalf than potentially you could be doing uh, through making your own behavioral changes. And that's part of the redirecting the flows of finance. So at Royal London, we offer our customers lots of choice. You can invest in a purely sustainable pension if you want to, uh, but we're also taking action for all of those customers who invest in our standard pension because we believe that responsible investing should be provided as a standard. And we're cutting the carbon emissions of our pensions um, by 10% in the UK, in our UK equity, and 30% uh, where we invest overseas. And so when you round that up across all of the different investments included in our most commonly used pension, it will decarbonize uh, by around 7%, which is absolutely the amount that we need to be decarbonizing every year, year on year. So we're taking action on behalf of those pensioners so that they don't have to think about it. We'll do that on their behalf. But if they want to go further and take even more action, then there are choices open to them to do that as well. But there is a vast amount of money invested in pensions today. We are the invested generation. And so where we put our money can have a huge impact from whether it's your pension default savings or your ISA savings. There's all types of new products out there that allow you to invest in all kinds of things from forests through to putting solar panels onto buildings in places like Hampshire. So yeah, lots of different ways for people to get involved and make their money matter and make it a powerful force for good. Yeah. And if you're listening right now and you want more on responsible investing, we did go into that in more depth on a previous episode as well. So just have a little scroll back through our previous episodes. Now, Casey, for those of us at home who want to find out more about COP, where's all the information going to be? Where can we go? So the UK has a specific site set up for COP26. It's www.ukcop26. Org. And if you go there, you'll be able to find out all kinds of information from how you could attend COP26 as an observer through to the different topics that are going to be discussed, the people who will be there, and also the history of COP if that's something you're interested in looking at. Nice. And before we get to the end of the episode, just wanted to finally focus on these COP events. They are mainly actions, as we've discussed, for governments, for countries, big organisations. But we have also touched on the role we all have to play because it's people within those organisations making those changes. What are some of the actions that we can take as consumers in the fight against climate change? So step one as a consumer is being aware of your climate impact. So if you're not aware of the impact, then you're not going to know how to make a change. There's loads of different tools out there where you can start to calculate your carbon footprint. And the homework challenge for everyone out there is, can you get your life to a one ton life? So one ton of carbon is the fair and equitable amount of carbon that everyone should be emitting if everybody was to have a fair share. For most UK people, uh, we're emitting around 10 tonnes of carbon each. And if you're a frequent flyer flying around the globe, then it's probably more. Whereas if you ride your bicycle, it's probably less. So understanding where your carbon emissions come from and are there any easy wins that you didn't even know were carbon intensive, but don't actually add that much to your life. So that's step one. Understand your own carbon impact and the things that you can do to make a difference. But step two, I think, is the bigger one, and it's where it needs all of us to, to have a voice. So some things we can't do by ourselves. Uh, we can't change the fact that lots of buildings are heated with gas boilers, and we can't change the fact that our transport system is heavily carbon-oriented all by ourselves. So it's really calling for change and supporting the change that needs to happen when it comes so that we can make some of those big systemic changes stick. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so two things to do. One is your own behavioral change, understand your impact. And then the other is support the societal changes that we need to make to decarbonize our lives. Yeah. Uh, we're almost at the end of our time today, Casey. I could chat to you forever about COP, but uh, if there are just three top takeaways you want people to remember from everything you've said today, what would it be? So top three things to take away ahead of COP26 is this year is incredibly important. So get out there, show your support. This year is the year we must bend the curve and start to head towards net zero. And I guess the other big thing is that everything you do can make a difference. So understand your impact and then contribute to that by making small, medium and big changes where you can and calling for big change by government and institutions so that we can change the world around us. Yeah, people power. Well, Casey, thank you so much for chatting to me today. But before I let you go, we ask all of our guests, we just like to pry into uh, their private lives um, <laughs> and go back to your 18-year-old self. If there was a little bit of advice you could give to 18-year-old Casey, what would it be? All right, 18-year-old Casey... Uh, sun cream. No, uh, so I was, I was living in Australia at the time. So I think there's, there's two things, um, learn to surf, right? So I didn't learn to surf despite the fact that I lived in Australia because everybody else already knew how to do it. And I thought I would look silly. Uh, but now that I've started as a much older than 18, um, person, I've realized that one, it's awesome and amazing and everybody looks silly. And two, being in the sea is is awesome and amazing. Mm. So, um, yeah, I would say learn to surf now uh, and, and use sun cream when you do. Two great tips. I'm going to try and do both today. Probably only get, going to get one of those done, but yeah. Uh, Casey Rayner, Climate Change Lead at Royal London. Thank you so much for chatting to me for The Penny Drops. You're very welcome. Lovely to talk to you. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Penny Drops. We hope you learned something new and useful to help you with your finances. We'd love to hear what you think of the series, so please do leave us a review. Or if you have any comments or money questions you'd like us to cover, you can get in touch at thepennydrops at royallondon.com. This podcast series is brought to you by Royal London, the UK's largest mutual life pensions and investment company. Royal London recommends you seek professional independent financial advice before making financial decisions. 